Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have a superstar with us tonight from Australia. We have Dr. Jennifer Buckingham. And um, uh, Jennifer wrote a fantastic blog that you can find on the Five from Five website. And the name of it is Don't Discard Comprehension Strategies. And we're going to be talking to her about this article. Let me first tell you a little bit about Dr. Buckingham. Uh, she is the Director of Strategy and Senior Research Fellow at Multilit and Director of the Five from Five Project. Jennifer is the founder of the Five from Five Project, which provides evidence-based information on effective reading instruction. And her full bio will be in the show notes. So uh, we're going to get started. And Jennifer, I have so many things from your article. I took notes, but um, I'm going to start off with a quote that you um, have in the article. And you said, the objective of strategies, uh, teaching, excuse me, the objective of teaching comprehension strategies explicitly is to make them metacognitively transparent and understandable to children so they can apply them in their reading and then go on to use them implicitly. So, I'd like to start off by talking about that. Why is it important to try to start off by making um, this connection early on so then later they can internalize it? Well, thank you, Faith. Thank you for that very kind introduction. So it's lovely to be here. Lovely to meet you too, Judy. So um, the reason I wanted to um, draw people's attention to this is because um, reading comprehension, as we know, super complex. The more you read about it, the more you realise how little we really understand about what's going on in the brain when we are comprehending a piece of text. So we know some of that um, and where there are a lot of theories and there's a lot of research, a lot of evidence, but there is an enormous amount um, to understand. and. Um, one thing I think that tends to get lost is for reading comprehension, like other skills, there is a beginner to expert or a novice to expert trajectory. So um, for beginning readers and also for struggling readers, we can't make any assumptions about what they know how to do. Uh, and so the analogy that I use is with phonics. So we understand that for some children, they you know, they understand the, the code relatively quickly and with a bit of instruction, explicit instruction in the alphabetic principle and some phonics, you know, they, they sort of, um, they can make those connections and they start to read and break that code relatively quickly and easily. Um, for other students, you need to be super explicit. You need to take the time to teach them in a really systematic and methodical way. Uh, and that is the best way to ensure that all children learn how to decode accurately and with automaticity. And we don't know at the outset which children those are going to be. So we have some idea from screeners, you know, things like phonemic awareness and so on. But it's not a foolproof way of saying, OK, well, you need lots of explicit instruction and you don't. <laughs> and 
there'll be some people, some students who need lots to start with, not so much later, not very much to start with, lots later. We, we can't know that trajectory in advance. So the best way is to draw on those principles we know about effective instruction, and that is to teach things explicitly. Um, and that way we can be most assured that children are going to grasp them. So, you know, Judy and I had um, a few episodes on about comprehension and, you know, we had people talking about it and there's a lot of controversy, Jennifer, about using comprehension strategies for how long, how much time do you spend on it? Do we even need to teach comprehension strategies? Um, Because here in this country, a lot of people now are adopting um, really knowledge-based curriculum. There is a big move to um, have a core curriculum that is uh, knowledge-based or content area, reading curriculum. There are different types of names for it. But essentially, it is all about building knowledge where um, some people have said that strategies are not so important. Um, So could you comment on that? Um, Absolutely. And and that was the reason for, you know, really uh, why I wrote that blog post is I felt there had been an overcorrection. So which it often happens in reading um, research and translation of reading research into practice that there can be a pendulum swing um, and people overcorrect um, because there has been, you know, examples of poor practice. Um, and instead of sort of taking a bit of a sophisticated view of that and saying, okay, well, maybe doing a lot of this or doing things this way isn't effective, perhaps we need to, to think about how we um, finesse that a bit, calibrate it better to reject things. And I feel like that's what happened with the knowledge versus skills or the knowledge versus strategies debate is that um, there was an understanding or a sense that strategies were being emphasised to the expense of knowledge. And instead of sort of bringing that, you know, calibrating that a bit more carefully, there was this rejection of strategies and um, and embracing the idea that knowledge was everything and you didn't actually need to teach strategies at all. And I think that came from a, you know, partly that overcorrection tendency, but also um, perhaps a misunderstanding of the differences between strategies and skills and those terms to be used interchangeably when they really shouldn't be. There's you know, there there's a difference between those two things. Yeah, so Judy, um, as you know, we've talked about this quite a bit um, in some other episodes. And I think, you know, we also felt pretty strongly just from our teaching experience that teaching comprehension strategies are, you know, very important for kids to be able to have this. Uh, And as Jennifer said, not all kids are able to just do it just because you can read the words doesn't mean you're going to automatically be able to comprehend Um, So now give us a little bit of an understanding now what's happening in New York City. So um, there were three possible programs that um, could be chosen in in the school districts. And I think all of them had a pretty strong, supposedly knowledge base 
to it, are comprehension strategies part of the core curriculum in all of those programs? And I know you could only speak to what maybe you have in your school district, but could you tell us a little bit about what's happening? So, you know, we've been hearing a lot about knowledge building curriculum for a while. Uh, New York City finally buckled down the law. I think they wanted to do this before COVID, but COVID came along and then things kind of, you know, um, didn't take place as soon as we had hoped for in New York City. But now that COVID is over, um, new mayor, new chancellor, and they said, that's it. We're bringing in evidence research-based curriculum. The three curriculums that New York City selected were um, wit and wisdom, expeditionary learning, and HMH. Now, I know that um, some may be considered more of knowledge building than others, stronger in that component than others. Some have also been in the field longer than others. So that's also something to monitor and so forth. And I don't know all the pieces of like how long they were tested. I know HMH was only in the field for a little while and so forth. So, you know, things are evolving on a daily basis. But, you know, for me, it was all really strange that people would just assume that, you know, that knowledge building portion would just magically, you know, give information that they needed in order to really, you know, dive deep into the tech, you know, first of all, not all of our students came to school with an equal amount of uh, background knowledge. Building background knowledge is sometimes really, really, really hard and takes time and so forth. And, you know, we know that building knowledge is critical and immersing deep into topics is very important. But my gut always told me that showing kids strategies and ways to, you know, um, dive deeper into text is very important as well. And, you know, as I'm going on my structured literacy journey, I'm finding that that is really true. Like I'm right now taking a course that um, Leslie Lord was kind enough to uh, introduce me to, which is SRSD. And there's this do what strategy. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's powerful stuff. When you <laughs> read a short response question, all you have to do is make this little T-chart of what, what the question is asking you to do, like maybe explain. And then what are you explaining? And just that simple strategy is so powerful because I'm already using it in the field. And it's like, kids are like, wow, we have this knowledge. And here's a way that we could break it down if we see a question and possibly write a more powerful response. So you know, I, I can't speak. I'd like to go with that. I'd like to go yeah. with that. So um, Jennifer, so Judy just brought up a strategy um, that is part of a, a writing framework. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about how important writing and reading go together and how that some of the strategies you use for writing could be used in reading. What are your thoughts about how we did teach strategies? Were we really doing a good job in schools teaching comprehension strategies? 
personally, I think that's why people think that we don't need them is because we never really did it well in the first place. What are your thoughts? I think there's a variety of different approaches that were taken. I think that there's a sense that, um, and I don't think this is necessarily as true in Australia. Um, didn't, I don't want to generalise from, you know, the, what was being done in the States to what's being done here. But the, there was a lot of kind of repetition of, you know, using just little isolated bits of text um, and using, you know, trying to learn to use one particular comprehension strategy or approach. Um, and it might be, you know, finding the main idea, which is the one that, that people have the most um, problem with <laughs> generally, even though, you know, really when you think about it, you know, that's just the same thing as summarizing and, you know, getting the gist. So um, finding the main ideas had a got a, a bit of a bad reputation, but I think that's sort of, um, that's it's a bit of a misnomer that that's all you're doing when, you, when you're so-called finding the main idea. But doing that in a disjointed way for weeks and weeks and weeks on unrelated pieces of text, yeah, you can see how that would, you know, have a very marginal benefit after the first few times. So the first few times you do that, you know, it's not, I don't think that's such a big deal. It's not as though that's going to do any child any harm. It's sort of making that, you know, the concept explicit to them, um, using a piece of text that, you know, that is what it's it, it's been chosen for. So focusing their attention on the thing you that, that you want them to understand or learn how to do. But then very quickly, what should have been happening was that being transferred into working with, you know, texts that were part of a, a larger unit of work, whether it was a knowledge-based unit, whether it's a novel, something that was actually going to be, um, you know, have some sort of depth of content or literature base that they'd be learning from the text as well as learning with the text. And so I think that was the missing step for a while. Um, and that doesn't mean, though, that we now reject that first step entirely. There is still, you know, a really good evidence base for, you know, particular comprehension strategies to be taught explicitly, um, but not in that isolated, repetitive way, in an integrated way and with each other and very quickly then, you know, um, placed within the, the context of, you know, so, some learning material of some kind. So, I, look, I would agree with you. Absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned in the article that it should happen for a limited time and at the right time. Could you mm -hmm. explain what the right time means and what is limited time in terms of what we should expect? Yeah. So the right time, I guess, is for beginning readers is from the beginning of instruction. So for beginning readers, before they can read connected text, we're doing that through oral shared reading. So, you know, they're learning how to decode, you know, that there's sort of these two parallel streams almost um, that are roughly, you know, aligned with a simple view of reading, the, you know, decoding um, and language comprehension. Uh, and so for beginning readers who aren't actually reading yet, you need to develop, be developing a vocabulary and comprehension through text that you're reading to them and with them. Um, meanwhile, they're learning how to decode and read accurately and fluently, and gradually those two things merge. You know, they're, they're starting to be able to read um, sentences and passages and then eventually, you know, longer pieces of text, and they're bringing with them those skills that you've worked with, you know, strategies or skills. I, I 
I conceptualize strategies eventually becoming skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you teach particular comprehension monitoring is a really good example of that. So teaching that as a strategy to begin with, and after a while that becomes um, a skill that that um, kids use, just use uh, implicitly and um, not necessarily consciously, but then sometimes they still use it strategically. You know, they still have it in their toolbox. You know, they're reading something that's relatively simple and easy to understand. Then their comprehension monitoring is going to happen relatively effortlessly. But even, you know, us as skilled readers, we still do use those strategies in a deliberate and strategic way when we're reading something that's that's a bit more difficult or we're reading for a purpose that requires us to have a deeper understanding or to be able to demonstrate a deeper understanding of it. So there is kind of a a trajectory of skill development. So I started with at the right time. So at the beginning for for all readers, as I said um, at the outset, because we don't know who's going to be able to pick these things up quickly and who isn't. Um, And for a limited time in the sense that, you know, that making that transition from explicit, you know, without really being too worried about the text that you're using for a limited time doing that into, you know, the the content. I mean, no one's arguing that knowledge building is a bad thing. You know, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think that that is, you know, yes, something yes. that we, we can take as a given, that background knowledge is essential <laughs> for reading comprehension. It's a, it's a, a good in itself, even putting aside reading comprehension as being the the outcome variable. It's just a good thing for children to, you know, students to know things. But so in terms of being able to say X number of hours, that's something that research hasn't told us yet. Mm. So it may be that, again, to draw the phonics analogy, you know, you there's no point in teaching letter sound correspondences, blending and segmenting once children know it and they demonstrate that they know it. Some students might struggle you need to teach them for a bit longer through intervention. Some students might, you know, have a little bit of a relapse where they find that difficult when you get into extended code and the complexity of text increases. You might need to do a little bit more phonic work with them, particularly for spelling. And similarly for strategies, you know, you teach it at the outset, um, but then you might need to revisit it. You might need to come back to it, you know, as, as the complexity of text or the type of text that children are working with changes to kind of activate that again. Say, okay, well, this is the way we've used um, finding, summarising or um, comprehension monitoring or visualising previously. Here's how we're going to do it now with this particular passage or book that we're working on. But ideally, you wouldn't need to spend as long on it. It would be a sort of reactivating of that strategy and being able to use it in a new and different way. Jennifer, can I ask you a question? So you mentioned, if I understood correctly, that a strategy could eventually become a skill. Is that mm. correct? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? A little bit more about that because that I think that would be really interesting to a lot of the teachers in the field and so forth on how and when that happens. Yeah, I guess we know we know when that happens. You know, through seeing it demonstrated by questioning you know, um, whether it's oral questioning or answering questions. And you brought up the issue of writing earlier. And it's real as the further children, you know, progress through schooling, the harder it is to separate writing from reading and reading comprehension, because that's largely how we ask 
students to demonstrate their comprehension is through their the way that they express it in writing. Um, so that that's strategy to skill kind of progression. Um, it it will depend a little bit on the um, complexity of the text, but there there are some skill or some strategies that will become implicit skills. Think something like comprehension monitoring. You know that that's something that you'll just start to do. There are other strategies that um, might continue to well, generally will continue to be used in a deliberate and conscious way. So skills are something we tend to use automatically um, without necessarily consciously doing it. Um, or without a great deal of effort. A strategy is something that you're using more deliberately for a particular purpose um, and you've decided to do it. And to decide to do it, you need to know how to do it in the first place. So it still needs to, you know, there's that, that teaching element, but some of those things are on a kind of continuum developmental trajectory. Other things are, you know, things that you will need to do that, that generally are always an active thing rather than a passive thing. So one of those things is summarising. You know, it's it's unless you have made a decision that you're going to summarize something after you've read it, you don't usually tend to sort of stop after a paragraph or a page and do a little mental summary or write <laughs> write one down. That's something that, you know, it's a strategy for a purpose. So that would sit in that deliberate um active strategy basket. But then there are other sort of comprehension skills that you just sort of do, you know, whatever it is that you're reading. Jennifer, yeah, that was a good question, Judy. And I think um, clarifying the difference was an important point. So you I'm know why, Faith? Because since the beginning of time, since I started teaching, there's always at every PD, what's a skill, what's a strategy, labeling them, deciding which one is a skill, which one is a strategy, then people mess up and they label it in the wrong category and then they're confused. So I think it was... <laughs> Definitely I see something. Jennifer shaking her head. <laughs> yeah, if you, you could choose. I did a little exercise in this a few months ago. I, I pulled out, you know, four pieces of writing where people were writing, you know, talking about comprehension strategies and skills, and they all categorized them differently. So because reading comprehension is so integrated and um, it's, you know, it's multi-component, you know, we, we know it's not a single construct, it's multiple constructs, they all affect each other. It's really difficult to create these two separate baskets and say, say one is the other. I, I think it's more useful to think about whether you're, it's something that you're doing actively or passively and whether it's something that you do, you can then call on to use in a strategic way, even if it's become an ex implicit skill. Let me ask you another question. Wait, wait, just let me. Jump. Oh, yes. Sorry. So I'm going to jump right in here, and I just want to know if this is BS or not BS. You know, oh, no. BS, but. To be or not to be. <laughs> so we want to know if this is BS. You put in here, comprehension instruction must always be embedded in a knowledge-building curriculum. BS. Is that what you're saying? That is BS. I think it's the always, you know, that that um, I would question. Uh, I think it, it it should eventually be, mm -hmm. um, and you know, as quickly as possible, it should be embedded in a content building mm -hmm. curriculum. But it doesn't have to be, you know, from the start. I think we, we need to sort of bring in. Well, look at the evidence. The evidence shows that. Um, 
that their comprehension strategy intervention has high effect sizes. And yes, we say, okay, yes, there's a background knowledge piece that's really important as well, but there is some, there's an explicit element of those interventions that isn't necessarily part of a, you know, a knowledge building curriculum. But again, you wouldn't want to do that forever. Um, the other part of it is that I think most of the studies that show the benefits of having the comprehension um, instruction and content embedded or integrated are with older students Mm -hmm. um so from year three upwards there is at the moment relatively limited evidence about how you do that um especially there's a great you know we we sort of I think it's accepted it's a really good idea to try and do that somehow from the beginning of school from k to two at the moment when you know that there's not really strong evidence about the best way to do that so In that blog, I just wanted to reassure teachers they don't have to panic, especially if they're working with beginning readers, that they're not, you know, integrating that in a really kind of sophisticated way. Because at the moment, you know, the the evidence still says it's okay to teach comprehension strategies, build knowledge at the same time or alongside you know, over time, we'll, you know, be more evidence about that. Lots of great people working on this question. But at the moment, you know, it's still okay to do both. You don't necessarily have to panic about doing them at the same time. So Judy, you know, this is very interesting to me, because I think this is how we always felt. um, Just from our experience, both Judy and I have been classroom teachers, and literacy coaches, And, you know, I was part of reading first Jennifer and I was a regional literacy coach. And from my understanding, you've been in those classrooms. uh, Well, between classroom teaching and classroom coaching and being an administrator, 37 years. And 26 for me. And it's funny (laughs) how the whole world, Faith and Judy said something and the, the whole world is like, Yeah, we were pretty much attacked um, about that. And from my understanding and from what I've read, uh, comprehension strategies are important. And K to two, grades K1 and two in particular, while kids are learning how to decode, we are building those strategies through read alouds and talking, and trying to develop all the thinking that goes into it. And once they're able to read for themselves, then we are weaving that in. And I didn't think we had to start with a knowledge-based curriculum in kindergarten, although building background knowledge is important. And I think that's what's misunderstood, Jennifer, at least from what I'm seeing from a lot of people out there. And I think that's why you wrote the article because it's like this overcorrection that's Mm -hmm. going on. So you don't have to call BS, but I think it is a BS moment when people are saying, boom, yeah, it was BS. So um, that I have so many questions too, Faith. I can't. I wasn't feeling good today, but all of a sudden, 
Meeting Jennifer got me a little excited because this is a very interesting discussion. Jennifer, so let me ask you something. So I'm in the classrooms all the time. Obviously, some programs are better at knowledge building and so forth. So that's that's a whole nother topic. But in the early grades, right, a lot of kids, K, 1, 2, especially K and 1, the kids are just learning how to read, right? So mm-hmm. what is the main, and they have, you know, a phonics block before that where they're learning how to decode and so forth. What is the main purpose of like the general quote unquote, what we call the ELA block? Is it to just have students comprehend and think about comprehension? Is it for kids to be learning how to um, synthesize code and meaning? Because Quite frankly, I think a lot of the data right now is showing that during that ELA block, kids are really struggling. Uh, The data is not showing that the kids are mastering things, right? These curriculums write these assessments and kids are taking unit assessments in K1 and 2. A lot of the teachers are still reading out loud the assessments because the kids haven't broken the reading code and the data is looking kind of ugly. So I'm just trying to like sort through it as their coach on what are the expectations in the early grades, especially when a lot of the kids can't read yet or are struggling to read. Are we trying to get them to read during that comprehension portion? Are we just getting them to understand, to listen and understand? Are we just discussing strategies? How do I put it all together? Yeah, I guess that the emphasis shifts um, even within that three-year period if we're talking K to two. Um, so the, the company I work for, Multilit, has a reading program called Initialit, which is initial reading instruction, and it is a 90-minute program for reading and spelling. And the first two years is very much a code emphasis. So um, with the, the knowledge that most students, and again, we need to sort of look at English language learners a little bit differently, but for um, native English speakers, those children come to school with their oral language is superior to their understanding of written language. So they come to school knowing a lot of words, hopefully, um, and what we need to be able to do is to show them how to translate those black marks onto the pa- on the page into the words in their vocabulary and create a, a you know a greater synergy between those two things. Uh, but instruction then needs to keep you know moving along side by side. So we can't just only focus on code because then their oral language development will um, become stagnant, and we don't want that either. But there is that code emphasis because that's the thing that they don't know generally. And also it's the thing that teachers are ideally trained to do. Whereas, you know, parents, grandparents, carers aren't necessarily trained how to teach, how to, you know, do that code breaking, the the reading part of things. Whereas, you know, hopefully they're getting, you know, still continuing to develop their oral language um, and doing shared reading and so on at home. So that would be, you know, the general recommendation. You never just do phonics. Um, because phonics, a phonics program, um, you know, the effectiveness of it will depend on how much, you know, oral language children have as well, because you, we all know that, you know, when a, a student can decode a word, if they don't know it, but they know what the word means and they're not reading um, and vice versa. So, you know, a lot of words, if you can't wake up what the words on the page are, you're not reading. 
So that code emphasis at the, at the beginning gradually kind of shifting so that, you know, when they're proficient decoders, automatic word readers, reading with some fluency, the emphasis then shifts and there's more time spent on vocabulary and reading comprehension. But again, just as it re to reiterate, it's never just one and then just the other. It's just the amount of time that's devoted to them. Um, it's just hard, Jennifer, you know, because a lot of these kids – um, in these knowledge building curriculums that I'm seeing, um, when they're given an assessment, they, they have to listen to the passages and so forth read out loud, their attention spans, the passages are long, um, they lose focus sometimes, and the data is just showing like they seem to understand it in class when the mini lessons or the lessons are happening, and then all of a sudden they're all bombing these assessments. And then it's just strange because like some of the stuff shows that those standards don't have to be met until second grade, but now we're asking them to take an assessment that's asking them to show mastery. So like- That is interesting. That it is really, really interesting. And I see the same thing that, you know, it there's a disconnect between what the program has in terms of the components in the program but yet the standard would come much later in time. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you really want to um, assess what you're teaching <laughs> to find out if students have learned what you've taught. And that's really the mastery component, isn't it? And so teach, then assess and reteach if it hasn't been mastered. Um, and, you know, in a cumulative way, so not teach, then test, and then leave that bit behind, teach, then test, leave that bit behind and hope that, you know, in two years' time, they've remembered the stuff you haven't taught or tested <laughs> for, um, you know, six or twelve months. Um, so that that curriculum-based assessment, you know, and that and the the mastery um, assessment sort of is one sort of ongoing piece. But then there's also there's underlying sort of um, the building up of skill uh, at the same time. So um, progress monitoring on a um, on an assessment that isn't necessarily directly related to what you've just been taught. So an example of that is oral reading fluency, for example. So you might think about, um, you know, a non-word reading test for um, determining whether children have learned to decode. So a non-word reading test is a really pure um version or a pure assessment of decoding ability because you know that children can't have just remembered that word from something they've read before. Um, so you might ask them, you know, to read, instead of reading um, sit, you'd ask them to read sut um, and see if they can actually read, you know, just work out what the word is. So that might be one way of, of testing de um, decoding. But then oral reading fluency as a, a an over time measure that you can do, you know, once a, a term or more often to to see, you know, what's what's going on in terms of a generic kind of building of, of skills. So those are sort of the two ways um, to assess in those early grades. But if you're um, waiting until, like in Australia, our first systemic assessment is in year three, that's a, you know, obviously schools are doing other sorts of assessments before that. There's no way that any, any student, that's the first time they've had their reading assessed at all. But um, you know, that's sort of the first time as a system we look at, you know, have children learn to read. Uh, and there really needs to be something quite much earlier than that. And so that's why I've been such a, a strong proponent of the phonics reading check or phonics screening check in year one. 
because that will give you a really good, yes, it's it's assessing phonics only, but that's a, a foundational skill that, you know, if a child is struggling with that screening assessment, then they are going to struggle with reading. So it's not a guarantee just because they can decode doesn't mean that, you know, they're comprehending, but it is a prerequisite for being able to read with comprehension. And so attention has to be be paid to that quite early in the piece. So it sounds to me as though there needs to be, you know, what you're talking about, Judy, an earlier assessment that's much more a subskill assessment that enables, you know, to sort of pull out what are the reading subskills that um, are developing or not developing. So Yeah, we definitely to- have um, Acadian screeners are very big in New York City right now, Dibbles, Acadians, and so right. forth. It's just hard because we're seeing some growth on those assessments, but we're not um, seeing as much growth on the comprehension-based assessments for uh, the uh, little guys yet. And we want to make sure that you know, we're seeing those outcomes. So, you know, it's hard when you're rolling out something. This is yeah. year two of rolling out uh, evidence-based curriculum. And, you know, we've had some episodes. Uh, we had this guest, Maureen Ruby, and she reminded us that it's just a tool. We're still going to have to put a lot of brain power into, like, thinking about what's happening, why is it happening, and how do we, you know, make things um, better. Yeah. Comprehension is notoriously difficult to assess accurately. Um, if you look at, and then there have been studies that have been done on this, you know, comparing, say, four comprehension assessments, and there's just been relatively little overlap in terms of, you know, the um, the variance that, um, that they're able to measure. So I think that's important to remember that trying that the judging um, comprehension skills based on one assessment is never a great idea. You need to use for comprehension, it's um, a couple of assessments and it's really, really difficult. But the younger a student is, the less reliable a comprehension assessment will be. That's a very key point. That's that's I would agree with that, definitely. In your article, Jennifer, you have a quote here and it was, you can't be pro-cake and anti-ingredient. And... I love that. And, um, you know, I think it's it's very interesting when we look at the big picture and, you know, yeah, we all want to get to the same place, but you can't ignore what got you there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so explain that a little bit more to us. You can't be pro-cake and anti-ingredient. Well, that quote comes from my friend, Daisy Christodoulou. So she has written a lot about knowledge and skills and, you know, the idea that you can do one and not the other. Um, And the question is, you know, which comes first? (laughs) To use an ingredient analogy, is it chicken or egg? Um, So in order to be able to develop skills, you're relying on, you know, at least some knowledge. And then as you're developing your reading skills, you're gaining knowledge through reading, which then enable other skills. And so there really is definitely a reciprocal kind of relationship between those two things. But if we're talking about, you know, assessing reading comprehension as a a construct and say, you know, this is the thing we're all for, um, you, you can't then just sort of say, well, I'm just going to ignore, you know, one part of the recipe. 
um, because, or, you know, add a bit more of this because we know, you know, that's that's the thing we, you know, we're interested in it at the moment or whether we feel as though the evidence is pointing. I think it's really, as with any kind of recipe, um, that, that, you know, you need to have all of the ingredients there, otherwise it's going to fail or or it will, you know, produce a different result than the, the one that you're looking for. So I, what I really wanted to do with this article was to come back to the evidence and say, yes, we all have this great um, enthusiasm for the for knowledge building and it's exciting and kids love it and, and teachers love to teach it and no one's questioning any of that. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to throw out you know the other parts of it as well that that actually do have an evidence base and it's wrong to say that they don't Leslie Lord Judy mentioned Leslie Lord and that's exactly what Dr Lord said as well that knowledge is important but there is a ton of evidence for teaching comprehension strategies our friend Nate Joseph he did a, a meta analysis in this area Also, it showed the same thing, that comprehension strategies are, in fact, important. And to ignore that, it would be really irresponsible. And I'm glad you said that because in your article, you said evidence is not uniformly strong. So I want to stress that because people are definitely getting the wrong message, Jennifer. Um, And I know that's why you wrote this article. But I would say that, um, you know, you said evidence is not uniformly strong. Um, It's promising for knowledge building. But yet everyone is buying a program now at least it seems like it, that it's being pushed where everybody seems, uh, everybody feels like they have to buy a knowledge-based curriculum for for reading and writing. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I don't think there's evidence to say that that people shouldn't do that. (laughs) I think that probably where we're headed at the moment over time is almost certainly that a knowledge building curriculum is going to be super effective. Um, and especially, again, I just want to sort of draw that distinction between beginning readers and, yes. you know, middle to upper primary. So just to be clear, I, I think there's much stronger evidence that that's useful at that level. What I'm most sort of concerned about is is to um, make sure people don't abandon teaching comprehension strategies, especially for those younger students and especially with, you know, oral um, reading, um, shared reading and, and questioning and so on, um, to, you know, you can't to, to make sure that that continues um, and also not to Im- abandon them entirely in the um, the upper grades either. And you also, when you look at those um, those knowledge building curricula, so the one I'm most familiar with is core knowledge. They teach comprehension strategies, right? So it's, it's done within that context, um, and so it is. It, it's it's easier for teachers to use a developed program for a knowledge building curriculum because it takes a long time to put something like that together. And so, while I wouldn't say you must, it's it is easier because it's really time consuming um, to to put something like that um, together as you know as an individual or as a school even. So certainly not um, cautioning anyone or recommending against that. I think it's a great idea, but just to sort of be a little bit, um, 
Yeah, a, a bit careful, particularly in catered to that you're not losing that explicit strategy instruction because it is evidence-based and for struggling readers in the upper years of school um, it's also evidence-based high effect sizes for interventions Um, and again to come back to an earlier point not all year you know not every day doing some sort of inferencing task um, all year obviously that's that's only going to have a minimal impact after a certain amount of time so there's some professional judgment that still can be used there while we're waiting for the the evidence around dosage but at the same time um, to reiterate that you know comprehension strategies and instruction is evidence-based and you finished your article with a quote from Nell Duke and we had Nell Duke on our uh, last episode and she had said um, we can advocate for particular research supported instructional practices without denigrating other research-supported instructional practices. And I think that's pretty much what you are saying here. Mm. It's important to keep strategy instruction right where it should be. So, Judy, did I leave anything out? Do you have any other questions or thoughts? All right. So one question, Jennifer. So a lot of schools are asking for kids to complete something after a teacher would do a comprehension lesson. And then the kids have to go off and do independent work after a teacher modeled something. Um, Some schools want to see artifacts and some kids can't write. How do we memorialize that kids are understanding um, concepts? in terms of comprehension. Yeah. Say you have 25 kids in your class. um, You want to assess, you just did a lesson and you want to assess, did the kids understand what I just showed them to do? How can you produce something? Because asking them all to write a response or um, something of that sort might be very difficult for them. So how can you know if they've understood what you've just taught them? Well, with a a variety of um, children in the class with a variety of different abilities in terms of being able to demonstrate that knowledge, then one way is to have a sort of a scaffolded or a structured sort of assessment that leads children through that that process of what it was that you were teaching them how to do. So there might be different levels um, of um of understanding that children can demonstrate so one level might be there might be some vocabulary words do you want to know if they they understood you know the vocabulary words in the passage you've been working with might be seeing if they can actually define or choose the correct def- definition of the vocabulary word then it sort of might be a sort of series of steps down towards you know um moving from you know that sort of literal comprehension towards more inferential comprehension and so a series of steps and so you will be able to see from you know where children get to in terms of the levels of um, but what about like for independent task without me like say they're at their desks and they have mm-hmm. to do something independent yeah. what could they do like if a kid can't read they're not going to be able to like read those vocabulary words well if they can't read I guess it's a, a matter of you know sitting with them and asking them um right Right. There's not really any way of getting around that, I don't think, um, other than, you know, the having an, an oral questioning. And that is going to um, tell you about their listening comprehension. 
but it's not going to tell you about their reading comprehension if they can't read the text. Um, and those it's interesting, are, yeah. are strongly it. related, but not exactly the same. Well, that I maybe what Judy is bringing out then is that this is the problem. There's a lack of understanding um, what the difference is and what you can reasonably assess and what you can assess. If the kid cannot decode, then how are you giving them an assessment on reading comprehension mm -hmm. if their reading ability does not allow them to do what you're asking them to do? That right. doesn't really make very much sense. No, and that's just, you know, particularly the case when, when I talked about the unreliability of reading comprehension yeah. assessment for very young students, because if they can only read a limited amount independently, then there's only so much you can ask them in terms right. of their comprehension. Right. So yeah. those two things are depend. you know, reading comprehension is dependent on reading ability. Um, yeah, I think it, um, Faith, it's, it's, it's that phone call that I gave you a couple of days ago with that work, with that wonderful worksheet I told you about. It was a worksheet where um, the teachers were um, asked to um, teach the students how to ask questions um regarding the text and then you know this knowledge building curriculum asked had a worksheet that said um i can ask and develop questions and you know here are these kids and they have this worksheet about asking and developing questions and yeah maybe they could do it orally but they certainly couldn't really write down a question to develop independently yeah. So I was like thinking, why did the publisher create a worksheet for kids that are so young that had little boxes where they're supposed to be writing a million different questions? I'm like, should they just draw a picture? And then Faith was giving me some ideas. So it's, you know, it's it's very hard in the early grades. And I think the other thing that I'm thinking about is for the older grades, I, where would we find the best of the best strategies for comprehension work? I know that, you know, Hennessy came out with the blueprint on comprehension. Um, I know there's many things that teachers did for a long time. I don't know if they're the most highly effective. I'm not a researcher. With I'm going to actually tell you, Judy. Where kids would Jennifer, underline. Wait, Jennifer what? has a book, which I didn't mention. <laughs> So Why, you waited till 8.30 to mention that? Why? Well, why not? So her book is Effective Instruction in Reading and Spelling. And so hold it up, Jennifer. There it is. I don't know if you could see that. It it's a little bit blurry. Maybe <laughs> well, we'll put it in the show notes, right? We'll put a link. Show notes. And um, it is written and edited by... Uh, Jennifer, there we go, and Kevin and Robin with Wildell. Is that how Wildell. you say Wildell? And so I would definitely say that she's she is an authority. She, I bet there's no worksheets in there that ask kids to write <laughs> a million questions when they still are learning their letters and sounds. No, no, that that <laughs> would be fair to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, those, those sorts of worksheets very much rely on children being able to read the instructions. But why do we keep seeing them, Jennifer? If people are saying these programs are evidence and research-based, why do I keep seeing these worksheets that literally make my stomach turn? 
That's a good, that is such a good question, Judy. Yeah, the program, everybody's saying, well, this is an evidence-based program. But wouldn't they find if they tested out the programs that the kids can't do those things? So why are they giving this? There it is. Yeah, there it it is. is. (laughs) Please help us. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's especially a problem in, in those younger grades. I mean, if, if if there are worksheets or independent work, you know, tasks for kids in year three and up um, that kids are struggling with because they can't read, that's not necessarily the fault of the program. It's the you know more the fault of their you know perhaps their early reading instruction that they're not able to read when they get into those upper grades, or they may have a learning difficulty. But it's not necessarily the, the um, fault of the program. But for you know, if you were, if something is aimed at younger readers who you wouldn't realistically expect them to be able to read independently, um, to be able to do a worksheet that depends on them being able to read independently, then there's um, some some uh, dots that are not being joined up properly there. Yeah, but that, but Jennifer, that is what Judy's saying. It is in the mm. K one and two grades that the program is asking these kids to formulate questions and put it in boxes. She showed me the worksheet and Mm -hmm. I just laughed. I said, you know, this is ridiculous. And yet it is part of the program. So I I don't know what to make of that. Jennifer, are there anything, you know, any last words that you have um, that we didn't cover that you would like to add? Yeah, not that I can think of. I just, you know, I hope that people take from this discussion that, you know, we're we're asking people to sort of think carefully about, you know, what does the evidence show? Keep coming back to what that that is, not to go beyond it, um, and not to throw out things, you know, that you know have have been shown to be effective um, in the pursuit of, you know, overcorrection towards something that, um, you know, is the I guess something that people are talking a lot about at the moment. So we need, it's both, not either or. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think my last thoughts on this is, um, you know, we, we need to really look at what was done before and say to ourselves, what worked what didn't work? Let's be smart about this. And if it wasn't working, because I do think that people are confusing guided reading comprehension questions that we would just throw out to kids in small group, lots of questions. That's not teaching comprehension. No. And that's not teaching comprehension strategies. And I, I want to be really clear that asking a bunch of questions in small group for guided mm-hmm. reading is not what we're talking about here. And I think that's point, Faith. So, mm-hmm. so, all right. Well, we want to thank you, Jennifer, um, for coming on with us. This was a great conversation. I think really so important Um, and it was really a pleasure and there's a time difference and we so appreciate you taking the time to work with us. Judy, why don't you let everybody know where they can find us? All right. So here we are. Follow me on Twitter at Boxner Judy. Follow Faith on Twitter at High Five Literacy at Faith Borkowski. 
Follow us on our newly designed Instagram page, The Literacy View. Also follow us on Facebook, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Follow us on YouTube. Subscribe to our channel, The Literacy View. Follow us on all those podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify. We're everywhere. The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. And we're having a good, good time here. And just remember, we always said that... The science of reading is not just phonics. Comprehension is very <laughs> important. And I can't wait to dive more and more into this topic. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us here tonight. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real Thank pleasure. You. And um, all your information will be in the show notes, your bio, your book, and um, you know anything else that's pertinent to the discussion. Thank you so much. All Thank right. You. Bye. Good night.